All right, we are going to be in Romans chapter number 8, and uh, let's take a pit stop on the way there, and I'd like for you to go to 1 Timothy chapter number 5. This will be part 3 in our series of messages entitled, The Edge Pieces of Dispensational Salvation. And I wanted to take you just a little pit stop to 1 Timothy chapter number 5, because uh, I was thinking about this past week, and... I kind of wrestled with the message this morning. Uh, we have been uh, very much uh, very doctrinal. In fact, uh, I was talking to my wife this morning. She spruces up my PowerPoint, and I said, how did it go? And she said, yeah, it was fairly easy PowerPoint. And uh, she said, you got a lot of Scripture in there. And I said, yeah, you know, um, I don't like to overwhelm people with too much Scripture, but when you're dealing with doctrinal things it's really impossible to do a good job of it without taking a look at a lot of Bible verses. And so uh, as a pastor, one of the responsibilities, a God-given responsibility, I should say, is to make sure that I teach knowledge and understanding. And uh, we're limited right now because of COVID on the amount of services that we can have. And so uh, if I have to choose between one type of sermon or the other, uh, I would say that um, the doctrinal things are going to be of utmost importance. Nobody drives by a a new house and talks about what a beautiful foundation that they have. You know, you talk about the aesthetics and the windows and the architecture, but you seldom really comment on, wow, what an awesome foundation. But you know what? If that foundation isn't there, you got trouble. Amen? And so the foundation is very important. And just by way of pit stop, in 1 Timothy chapter number 5, it says in verse number 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. I wanted to just let you see that labor in the Word and doctrine. Not only is it hard work to prepare and to preach Bible doctrine, but I want to uh, just show some compassion toward you, and I understand that listening and absorbing Bible doctrine also requires some labor. And we're living in a day and age where church is most people come to church and they want a pacifier, they want a sugar stick, they want dessert, and they don't necessarily want the, the meat and the doctrine of the Word of God. And so sometimes as a pastor, you think, well, uh, you know, people are going to get weary of doctrine. Let me just ask you and exhort you to just Stay patient with that Bible doctrine. You may not get it all in just one message, but all of this is building blocks. And the more that you understand the things that we've been talking about this past, really the past three months or so, the more that you understand those hard to understand passages of Scripture, the more that your Bible is going to come to life to you. You don't have to read things and go, I didn't understand what I read. And as a Christian, one of the greatest joys is reading the Bible for ourselves, and the Holy Spirit just jumping something off the page and going, wow, I see it, I get it. And it's so excited when the Bible just kind of all starts coming together. And uh, that's why the, the title of this series of messages is The Edge Pieces 
of dispensational salvation. We start getting some of the, the, the easier, the, the more um, solid things out of the way, and then we can start learning the Bible for ourselves. And so this is part number three. Uh, go ahead and look now at Romans chapter number eight. And what we're going to be talking about today is more contrasts between Old and New Testament salvation. We've already seen quite a few, and I'm going to limit my review today, but uh, you're going to see some additional contrasts that make it clear that dispensational salvation is way different in the Old Testament period of time as opposed to the day and age that we live in today. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Key word there is likeness, folks. Jesus did not come in sinful flesh. You know, we inherit our sin nature from our Father. Jesus had an earthly mother, but his Father was God, his heavenly Father. And so Jesus did not have sinful flesh like you and I do when we are born, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, it says here, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do that? Verse number four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. What's the next word, folks? In us. The righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. Not by us, but rather in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We're going to see some contrast between Old Testament and New Testament salvation that, in my mind, are pretty crystal clear. First, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessings upon the message today. Dear Lord, thank you for the singing, the privilege to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for everyone that has come to church today and those that cannot come Those that are watching through live stream, we ask that you would bless them. Help us now to be attentive to the Word of God. Remove all distractions in our mind as well as in our homes. And Father, just help us to focus now on the things that we need to learn by way of foundational truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, just quick review of some things that we've already seen in the previous two studies. First of all, the message of the cross was a hidden message. Colossians 1.26, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. And then, of course, Romans chapter 16, that makes it pretty clear in verse number 25, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets. As we've already seen, to look back after the cross of Calvary, there are some Old Testament passages of scripture that that mystery is now revealed. But prior to the cross, the the message of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was hidden. Even the disciples, when Jesus would talk to them about 
going to the cross and dying. They just said, far be it from thee, O Lord. They couldn't believe that he was telling them that he was going to be crucified. They just didn't get it. It went over their head. Why? Because the message of the cross had remained hidden. And that's why I believe that this um, theory of Old Testament salvation being looking forward to the cross, whereas we're saved by looking backward to the cross, it doesn't matter to me if 99% of the entire body of Christ believes that. If it's not clear from the Scripture and that the Scripture contradicts that theory, we need to stick with the Scripture. Amen? I've mentioned this before. Some of my best friends in the ministry, we don't necessarily agree on Old Testament salvation. And certainly, I'm not going to make it an issue of fellowship. Uh, There are people, listen, I read the Bible, and, you know, I believe some things differently today than I did 20 years ago. Why? Because I've continued to study. And when something that I was taught or that people that I love and admire teach certain things, and then I see something Clearly from the scripture, we always need to stick with the book, not with man. Amen? Men, movements, doesn't matter how popular, how much you like someone. If you see something from the scripture that just says, you know what, they didn't have that right, doesn't mean that you have to treat them like a heretic. It just means that you have to, uh, you have to compartmentalize that particular truth and say, look, I'm going to stick with what the Scripture says. Now, in contrast between Old and New Testament salvation, the first thing that I want us to take a look at today is the presence and purpose of the Holy Spirit. From the New Testament, and particularly from when Jesus died on the cross, and let me, let me remind you of something we saw last week, and that is this. The New Testament portion of the Bible begins with Matthew. But remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even uh, most of John for that matter, they, the narrative is taking place prior to the cross of Calvary. So the actual New Testament doesn't begin until Jesus dies on the cross. And so the New Testament of Scripture does, but they're still living under the Old Testament law during the narrative of the Gospels up until the time of Christ, or excuse me, the time of the cross. Now, the Holy Spirit, or the term Holy Ghost, here's a couple of interesting statistics. First of all, the term Holy Spirit appears 11 times in the New Testament, whereas it only appears one time in the Old Testament. And I'll show you that time here in just a moment. Whereas the term Holy Ghost appears 87 times in the New Testament. And how many times do you think it appears in the Old Testament? Zero. Zip. Nada. It does not. The term Holy Ghost does not appear in the Old Testament. That tells me that from the time of the cross on, something has changed as far as the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit and vice versa. Now, the one Old Testament reference is Psalm 51, verse number 11. And David, this is his psalm of repentance, getting right with God after he sinned with Bathsheba and, of course, killing her husband Uriah. 
and he's getting right with God. God extends grace to him and does not, um, does not exercise the capital punishment that would have been just under the Old Testament law. And David says this in Psalm 51, verse number 11, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is obviously a descriptive term. David is not necessarily referring to the third person of the Godhead as the Holy Spirit with a capital H or a capital S. He's referring to the Spirit of God being holy. It's a descriptive term rather than a title. But nevertheless, we find here the term Holy Spirit. And David is concerned that God would take his Holy Spirit away from him and cast him off from his presence. Now, the number one distinguishing characteristic of the church age, this dispensation, it's also called the dispensation of grace, is the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. The term Holy Ghost, when you think about it, and I know Brother Runyon uh, taught this from this pulpit on numerous occasions, he taught it to me, the phrase Holy Ghost is simply that the, the Holy Ghost is the ghost of Jesus Christ. He, he has died and physically he is in heaven, but his ghost still inhabits the earth and it inhabits the, the body of believers. We'll see that here in just a moment. And so the ghost of Christ, the Holy Ghost, is the predominant difference between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer. Nowhere when we sin and get right with God are we commended or even instructed to pray that God wouldn't leave us. In fact, the Bible says, God makes it clear, I will never leave you or forsake you. So the Holy Spirit comes inside of the believer and he promises that he will not depart from us. Take your Bibles and go to John chapter number 7. John chapter number 7. And Jesus is talking to them about the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice here in verse number 39, it says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. He's not saying that they already have received the Holy Ghost. He's speaking to his disciples, but that they should receive. This is going to happen in the future. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Why? Because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit was not given until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a very clear contrast between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer. The Holy Ghost has not even yet been given. Uh, look at John, or excuse me, uh, John 20, verse number 22. You can read it on the screen. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. All right, so at this point, after the resurrection of Jesus, he breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Ghost. But a careful study of Scripture makes it clear that while he breathed on them, and the Holy Ghost came upon them, perhaps maybe in them. I don't know 
the details of this. I do know this, that still something was missing or had yet to be fulfilled. Here's what I'm saying. In Acts chapter 1, in fact, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 4. And, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about when did the church begin. And, and ultimately, in retrospect, we'd have to say that the, the obvious dividing line would be the cross of Calvary. And so I'm not being all nitpicky and dispensational. You know, we're rightly dividing the Scripture. We're not chopping it up. And so a lot of this, there is certainly some wiggle room for understanding and interpretation. But I do read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13, where the Scripture says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. So the body is the church. And so as believers, we are baptized, we are immersed, placed into the body of Christ or the church. And so uh, certainly it, it is not, um, it is not far-fetched to at least have an idea that the church literally began at Pentecost. Look at what we find here in Acts chapter 1 verse number 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul, and we don't have time to study this one out, but the Apostle Paul revealed to the church in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and throughout many of his letters to the, the, the Christian, the Gentiles, he revealed that mystery of the Holy Spirit of God. This baptism, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit of God into the body of Christ. This is not a water baptism. This is a spiritual baptism, and it takes place in the spirit realm. It takes place inside of us, not with the physical body. Paul reveals more of that. But obviously, this baptism that Jesus is talking about, he told his disciples, the same ones that he had already breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. He said, I want you to wait and tarry here in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost shows up. So this baptism of the Holy Ghost was in addition to him breathing on them in John chapter 20 and verse number 22. You know, you know what's interesting about this baptism of the Holy Ghost? Peter receives this, experiences it, but if you read his dealing with Cornelius in Acts chapter number 10, and then his explanation in Acts chapter number 11, it makes it clear that while Peter experienced this baptism, he didn't even understand it himself until later on. And so, once again, just like Old Testament salvation, when did the church start? Look, there's no point in having divisions or debates or contradiction. There's no point in fussing over things that aren't just a slam dunk and absolute. But 
I personally lean toward the fact that this baptism, when the Holy Spirit showed up there at Pentecost, that's when the baptism of the Holy Ghost took place. And certainly, I would have to say that that has a connection to the beginning of the body of Christ. Now, consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19. Now, this is a doctrinal truth, but listen, just because something is doctrinal doesn't mean that it is not extremely practical. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul said, what? You know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of one of those statements, like kind of sarcasm, kind of like, what? <laughs> like, this, what you're thinking here is ridiculous. That's, that, that word, what, with a question mark, that's in essence what Paul's saying. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You know, this is a contrasting difference between the Old Testament saint. Nowhere in the Old Testament Scripture is it said of the believer, the saint, the righteous person, that the Spirit of God, or that their body is the temple of God. We find that there was a tabernacle and there was a physical temple there in Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple. That was the house of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, listen, this building, we refer to it as the house of God because it's a house and it belongs to God. But the house of God literally in the New Testament is our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of God. Now let me ask you a question. If the Old Testament Levitical priest were to go into the tabernacle carrying a pound of bacon, what, what do you think God would think of that? You know what? God would just strike him dead. Now don't, don't jump to any conclusions. We're in the New Testament. Okay? And we're Gentiles. Bacon's okay. I could prove that to you from the Bible. So just, you know, settle down. I know that some of you were thinking, heresy. But I caught you before you walked out on me. But back then, if that Levitical priest would have defiled the temple of God, there would have been serious, serious consequences. Now let me ask you a question. Why do we as believers who have something that no other time period, no other group of believers ever had, why do we take our lives and what we do in and with our bodies so lightly if we truly believe that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost? Paul says we're not our own. We are bought with a price. Well, I'm going to live my life my way. Well, you know what? We cashed that in when we said, God, I want you to save me. My sins have been destroying me. I know that I deserve hell. I know I'm on my way to hell. God, I just want you to forgive me and show me mercy. You know what? We said, God, I want your forgiveness, but in exchange, I'm turning my life over to you. I'm not talking about lordship salvation here. I'm not talking about works. I'm talking about a change of heart. 
And it scares me and concerns me how many professing believers in this day and age say that they're saved and on their way to heaven, but this idea of our body being the temple of the Holy Ghost seems to have no effect on the way that they live their life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 17 says, If any man defile the temple of God... Him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But listen, you need to understand, I need to understand, that there is only so much that the Holy Spirit will put up with if we defile the temple. Listen, you can do what you want to do. And being saved, remember what we read just a little while ago, that if Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the law, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. That is that positional righteousness. God looks down upon us and he doesn't see our performance. He sees the performance of his son, Jesus Christ. But as he lives inside of this body and our will we, our will is that gateway to which direction we're going to go. Are we going to follow the Holy Spirit and walk with the Holy Spirit? Or are we going to walk after the flesh? God will be merciful. I think about four, over four years of my teenage life, I was a born-again believer. At least I, I believe that I was. And, and the Holy Spirit, I was making the Holy Spirit inside of me miserable. And because... I am one with the Holy Spirit. I was miserable. You know, that's an amazing thing. I was enjoying the pleasures of sin, and at the same time, inwardly, I was about as miserable as I could be. And I always wondered, I was always just kind of thought it was intriguing how that my friends and buddies, we'd be doing the same thing, and I would maybe say, say something my, my guilty conscience would come out in my words, and they just kind of look at me like, what's up with you, Mitchell? They, they thought I was weird because inwardly I'm miserable, and they're not even bothered by what we're doing. You know what that is? That was the Holy Spirit of God. And while I was defiling that temple, the Holy Spirit of God's putting up with it and putting up with it and showing mercy and showing grace, but ultimately... If the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, there will come a time where God says, look, I've had enough. This temple is as filthy as I can stand. I've been holding my nose. I've been trying to find a little corner or closet here that's still clean in your life. And uh, the stench is starting to permeate the closet. And I can't take it anymore. God will take you out. You say, what are you trying to, is this scare tactic preacher? Nope. Just plain, simple Bible truth. Listen, I'm not a retreader. I don't try to get people saved that are already saved. I've seen preachers that were very good at that. I mean, could get a hold of your emotions and cause you to doubt and cause you to struggle and make an emotional decision. I'm not into all of that. But I will say this, I'm not into this idea that I prayed a prayer when I was an eight-year-old boy and I've lived my life just wicked with no, with really not bothering me that bad. 
and nothing seemed to be happening. I don't feel like God's chastening me. I don't feel like that I'm miserable inside, no conviction, and it's just, well, I'm going to live my life and praise the Lord. When I die, I've got my ticket to heaven. I don't buy any of that. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't buy it. At some point, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us is going to say, hey, I can't leave you or forsake you. The only way that I can get out of this filthy mess that you put me in is to take you out of here. When I got right with the Lord 30, 36 years ago, just before I turned, going on 37 now, when I got right with the Lord, there was a strong sense in my mind and in my heart that God was getting ready to do just exactly that with my life. He said, Randy, you need to get right now or, and I've told you this before, he just left after or, he left it blank. And I'm like, what or what? I want to know. I want to I weigh this. You know, should I go to this, what I was planning on doing? You know, what's the consequences? God didn't tell me. But just as sure as I'm standing here today, in my heart of hearts, I believe that the hammer of judgment would have fallen in my life. And he would have probably, no doubt, have taken me out of here. And I would have certainly deserved it. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13, Paul said this about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He said, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, watch this, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit coming inside of us, and we are sealed with that Spirit of promise. Another verse that's similar, Ephesians 4, verse number 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You know what's that saying? That's saying exactly what I already expressed by way of testimony. I had the Holy Spirit of God inside of me. He wasn't going to leave me. I was sealed unto the day of redemption, but I was grieving the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit isn't a substance. He's a person. And you know what? Uh, If you think that you can live in your home with someone else living in your home and not recognize it, let me move in with you for a couple weeks. Let, let, let's see how that goes. See if you, can, if you can have me live with you and it go unnoticed. Um, no, you're going to notice. You're going to notice that, wow, that guy really, he looks rough in the morning. You're going to notice some different aromas. Don't say amen, honey. You're going to notice a lot of different things. You're going to notice things that I do that will be really annoying to you. I know that's hard for you to believe. Most of you think I'm really perfect. You know, somebody, anybody that lives in your house, you're going to notice. If the Holy Ghost of God lives inside of you, how can the believer not at least somehow recognize the fact that somebody inside of me is not liking my sin, 
Somebody inside of me is trying to do everything that he can do to thwart my sin life. And you know what? I look back at those four years in my teenage rebellion, and I see time and time again the Holy Spirit of God trying to get me back on the right path. Sometimes it frustrated me, but I look back and I thank God that I was sealed unto the day of redemption. But I certainly don't look back with fond memories of the times that I have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And you know what? Even since then, how many times have I grieved the Holy Spirit by my own sinfulness and my own selfishness? So there's certainly a difference when it comes to the Holy Spirit in contrast between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. And that brings us to my next topic, and that is the, the contrast between the security of the believer. There is some difference, I mean some really, really stark contrast between eternal security in the day and age that we live in in comparison to the believer in the Old Testament. If salvation in the Old Testament were the same as the New Testament, once again, just theoretically, the Old Testament saint, if he's looking forward to the cross and he has the same salvation, and many teach that the Old Testament saint was part of the same church as you and I are, if that was the case, then the Old Testament saint would also be eternally secure. However, the Scripture clearly contradicts this idea. Take your Bibles and go to Ezekiel chapter number 3. Now, I'm going to take you on a tour, just a handful of passages in the book of Ezekiel that are going to make it crystal clear whether or not the Old Testament saint or believer had eternal security. Ezekiel 3, verse number 17, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet. He said, Son of man, that's what God referred to him as, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul." We're not talking here about just physical death here, folks. We're talking about Ezekiel's soul. We're talking about the hypothetical soul of the person to whom he's warning. Verse 20, again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned, 
also thou hast delivered thy soul. Now, we're going to look at three additional passages. I could probably take you to about a dozen just in the book of Ezekiel itself. But just as a sampling and just so that you can see some additional verbiage that God talks about that makes this clear, obviously, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, God says they're going to die in their sins and their soul is going to be lost. Look at Ezekiel 18 and verse number 20. Ezekiel 18 and verse number 20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Look at verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. You know, the children of Israel, when Ezekiel presents this concept to them, they're like, well, the, the way of the Lord's not equal. And, and you know what, they're, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking that here's a righteous man that lives 50 years of doing righteously. And then at the end of his life, he turns away from that and commits wickedness. God says if he dies in that state, God's not taking all of his good works and his bad works and weighing them in a balance like the average person thinks today. It was the condition that a man's soul was in when he breathed his last breath that determined where he went in the Old Testament times. And you know what? That truth has a certain application to you and I because while we are not going to be judged whether we go to heaven or hell, we are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're backslidden and you're not living right, you're not living righteously, you need to repent and get right with God because it's going to have major ramifications when you stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, look at Ezekiel 33. One more and then we'll move on to our next topic. Ezekiel 33, verse number 13. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousnesses, notice the plural of that, shall not be remembered but for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. And so it was the state of the soul at the time of death that determined where the person in the Old Testament, where they went. Now, that brings us to the next topic, and this is our last part of this study, and that is the destination of the soul after death. Remember, we're talking about contrast between Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation. And there was certainly a contrast between where the soul went prior to the cross of Calvary. Turn to Luke chapter number 16. Luke chapter number 16. 
While you're turning there, let me say this emphatically. The story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 is not a parable. It is a certain rich man. It is a story, a historical account of somebody, of two people that Jesus knew of. I don't know if he knew them uh, during his uh, earthly life, or he just happened to know them because he's the creator. Uh, We don't know if this happened during his 33 and a half years on planet earth, or if it happened before. He just knew these two men and what their eternal destinies would become. Luke 16, verse number 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died, that's Lazarus, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now we'll see here in a minute what Abraham's bosom was. But it says the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he left up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. This is prior to the cross. Two men die. One was righteous, and one was evil. Lazarus was a beggar. He had nothing as far as this world had to offer, but he went to a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. The rich man had everything that he could possibly want on this earth, but he ended up in a place of torment called hell. And by the way, when the Bible says that in hell he lift up his eyes, that word lift is present tense. It is not lifted. It's not past tense. This isn't something that happened. Jesus used the word lift because when he tells this story, he's saying this is still happening today. And while Lazarus is no longer in Abraham's bosom, rest assured the rich man is still 2,000 years later lifting up his eyes in torments in a devil's hell. In Luke chapter 23 and verse number 43, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. All right, once again, it was the state of the soul at the time of death that determined where a man would go after death. The the thief on the cross, he lived a wicked life. But there in his dying moments, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, there are some people that very foolishly think, well, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be like that thief, and I'm going to live my life wickedly and do whatever I want, and on my deathbed, um, I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive me. I got news for you. That will never, ever work. Why? Because God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our mind, and that's not going to fly ever. I would, that would be one of the most foolish things that you could think. That thief on the cross, he never ever entertained the idea of repenting and believing. But at that moment, God got a hold of his heart, and he responded to it, and he repented, and he said, Lord, remember me. And what did Jesus say? Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me. Where was Jesus going to be that day? 
in paradise. Paradise. Now, I don't have time to exhaust this study, but let me say this, that you will find, if you study this for yourself, that Abraham's bosom and paradise are synonymous. They're the same exact place, just a different terminology describing the same geographical location. Jesus said to the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse number 40? He said, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights, where? In the heart of the earth. Now, in Luke 16, this narrative, you have the rich man in hell, and you have the Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And remember in that story that, that the rich man could look across and he could see Abraham and he could see Lazarus. And when he wanted Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water to cool his tongue, what did Abraham say to him? He said, he said besides that, there's a great gulf fixed. There's a gulf, there's a canyon between us and you. Before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, both hell for the wicked and Abraham's bosom or paradise for the righteous, both of those geographical locations for the soul were in the heart of the earth. In 1 Peter 3.19, the Bible says that when Jesus was in the heart of the earth, that he preached unto the spirits in prison. So this heart of the earth is also referred to as a prison, and that's relevant to the fact that Ephesians 4 and verse number 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Prison. He took Abraham's bosom, he took paradise, and when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, guess who he took with him? He took Lazarus, and he took Abraham, and he took everyone that was in paradise in the heart of the earth with him as he resurrected and went up to the third heaven. You say, why were they there? (laughs) Good question. Because he had not yet made the supreme sacrifice for sin. And the sin, our sins, the sins of the Old Testament believer could not be atoned for until Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Listen, God's not going to allow any sin into heaven. And that sin has to be completely washed away. And it could not happen until Jesus paid that price on Calvary's cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 8, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You see, folks, as believers in this dispensation, when we die, hey, I don't care what the Seventh-day Adventists say, they are wrong. They are wrongly understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. You take Ecclesiastes out of the equation and they have no proof text. Hey, Ecclesiastes is talking about the man under the sun. It's how we see. And by the way, Solomon is writing it in the Old Testament before the resurrection. Because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then he told the church at Philippi, 
In Philippians 1.23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul was not saying that, hey, I have a desire to die and uh, to be asleep until the rapture takes place. He knew that at his death, that his soul would leave his body and that his soul would be in the presence of Jesus Christ, consciously. Now, that's not to minimize the resurrection of the body and that reunion at the rapture, but certainly our loved ones who were saved, they are consciously in the presence of Jesus Christ as we speak. Someone said, are they looking down on us? Are they watching out for us? You know what? I don't know, but I tend to think no. Don't you? Don't, I mean, there's a sentimentality and an emotional thing that, hey, I'd, I'd like to think that maybe my dad's looking down and saying, preach it, son, tell it like it is. But I really think that probably he's just looking at Jesus and he's still doing this. And, and, you know, the reality of it is, why would I want him thinking about me when he's in the presence of Jesus? That's pretty selfish, don't you think? So I don't know. It doesn't matter because God's watching over us. You know, some of that sentimentality and that tradition, it's really kind of some paganism mixed in there. Anyhow, I, I hope I didn't just offend anyone. Or do I? <laughs> You know, if it's not true, then it really doesn't matter. So let's conclude this. In conclusion, the greatest evidence of salvation is the presence of the Holy Ghost, not the recollection of our testimony. You know what? I was saved as a five-year-old boy. I have vague recollection of hearing the gospel preached, of going down uh, there at that uh, baseball stadium and having the counselor uh, kneel with me and praying there at that metal folding chair and him opening up the scriptures. I have vague recollection of that. I, I don't remember the details. Uh, I can't say like some, um, like some Southerners that I got gloriously saved. I remember when I got right with the Lord, I struggled with that because they would tell their testimonies about coming down to an old-fashioned altar and weeping and crying and raise after praying, getting up and shouting hallelujah and running the aisles and thinking, I'm thinking, I, I didn't get gloriously saved. I just got saved. And, and I remember, and sometimes they would leave you the impression that if your experience wasn't similar to theirs, then you didn't really get it. And it caused me some confusion. I struggled with that. And they would talk about the date and the time and the color of the carpet. And here I've got this memory of a five-year-old boy, and it's like, oh, man, I don't... And at that time, I, didn't... I remember more of it now than I even did when I got right with the Lord. And it just caused me confusion. And so I tried to get saved again. I tried to say that prayer. You know, I tried to get, I wanted to get gloriously saved. They talk about deep conviction over sin. And I'd say, I want that. I want what they've got. And I'd pray and I'd pray and I'd ask the Lord to save me. And you know what would happen? Nothing. The devil would start getting me to think that, hey, God doesn't want to save you. 
And you know what I found out? I found out from the Word of God that God didn't answer my prayer because if He would have answered my prayer, He would have been being dishonest. Why, why would He save someone that He's already saved again? Then He would have to be contradicting His Word. He would have to say, you know what? I'm going to contradict my Word just to give this, give my son an emotional experience so he'll quit worrying about it. You know what I found out though? All these people that had this emotional experience and said, I've never doubted it, they ultimately have a time in their life where they doubt it. You know, you go through the, just the right problem, persecution, trouble, trial, just like John the Baptist, art thou he that should come or look we for another? If you are determining your salvation based on an experience or a recollection of your testimony, then that's all going to be faulty, and it's going to let you down. But I'll tell you what won't let you down, and that is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. If you are truly saved, you are eternally secure. You're on your way to heaven to be with Christ. If you claim to be saved, but being with Christ has little or no appeal to you, it is possible you have only went through the outward motions. Outward motions or mental belief will not get you to heaven. You will die in your sins. Is what people think about you worth going to hell? Is some little old sin that you thought was going to bring you pleasure, but all it does is just bring you conviction and guilt and remorse, is it worth dying and going to hell? I would like to think that no one under the sound of my voice is that foolish to think that anything is worth going to hell over or anyone is worth going to hell over. Folks, we have an opportunity, we have a privilege, and we have a blessing like no other soul in any other time period, in any other dispensation. We have the opportunity to be saved doesn't matter if we're Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter if we're male or female, doesn't matter what our nationality or ethnicity is, doesn't matter what our social standing is, doesn't matter whether we have, uh, we have wealth or if we have not even a penny to our name, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save all sinners. We have the opportunity to simply be saved by turning from our sin and calling upon the name of the Lord, saying, Jesus, I believe you died for me, and I am asking you to be my Savior. It is that simple. No blood sacrifice, no penance, nothing that we have to do to work or earn it. We just have to receive. Jesus took care of it all. We don't have to add anything to it. We just have to receive it. We have that opportunity. I'm reminded of Matthew 27 and verse number 22. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? He didn't know what to do with him. But you know what? The biggest question is, what will you do with Jesus? If you're not saved, get saved before you leave this place today.